This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker, and today we are giving you listeners a little bit of a feel of what it was like to attend the third National Conservatism Conference in Miami, Florida. Uh, I'm here with my colleague, Daniel Osborne, Programs Manager at the James Wilson Institute. Uh, Daniel and I both attended the um, National Conservatism Conference. Um, For me, it was my second conference. Uh, I attended NatCon 2 in Orlando in 2021. Uh, For Daniel, it was his first NatCon. And what we wanted to do was really just kind of give an overview of the conference, uh, what it felt like to attend. Um, in, from my perspective, what was different uh, this time uh, from last year's NatCon, but uh, we wanted to get things started by having Daniel describe what it was like for the first time to give you, the listener, a feel of what it might have been like for you as a first time. So Daniel, what was it like, um, just as a conference goer, um, totally aside from what it was like uh, working uh, uh, at the conference on behalf of JWI? All right. Well, thanks for having me uh, me join you today, Garrett. Uh, as far as the conference, I mean, it was it was decidedly new. It was something very different. Uh, showing up, we were at one of the massive golf course resorts down in Florida. A beautiful location, fantastic place, and uh, it it served well for the amount of uh, energy that you had and the number of people who were there. Um, as far as the conference itself, for being a first timer, it was it was really interesting because obviously this is a relatively new conference, mm-hmm. um, and many of the people are coming in. You have some who, like you, have been there before. They're coming back because they like what they saw, or they're you know decidedly part of more of the the NatCon inner crowd, as it were. But then you also had many people who were showing up for the first time, much like myself, and and realizing, okay, this is kind of building its own critical mass. Um, And there was a lot of excitement over that. This is something that is is going to be going places, and and people are very aware of that. Um, One of the the biggest, uh, I guess, telltale signs, as it were, was just being out in the hallway. And the amount of energy, the amount of uh, groups of people milling from table to table, interfacing with some of the larger groups that were there. You had groups like the Heritage Foundation who set up entire booths and recording studios. You had some news organizations that were there. You had small organizations like our own, along with uh, some that were international, some that are more local. It, it all varied so much. Um, and no one group was coming into this without like their own kind of contribution to things. Um, But for many of the people who were there for the first time, this was kind of a chance for them to get an idea or to come to grips with Mm -hmm. the question of what is national conservatism? What is this new uh, movement here? Because really a lot of what's been going on, it seems, at this place is kind of this coalition building. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing people together, getting people all, all on the same page um, for something that's new. And so the question, of course, becomes, uh, what is the new thing? Like, let's define this. Let's figure this out. 
Um, obviously, the, uh, the statement of principles that they put out was a big part of that, and you had a lot of people visiting to say, okay, wh what does this look like in practice? What does this look like when it's actually put in front of people? Uh, so a lot of energy and a lot of excitement over what's new and, uh, and what's going to be happening next. So as a first-time conference goer, were you taken by the level of discourse from people that weren't necessarily on the stage but were sharing discussions uh, with the panelists maybe as soon as the panels were over uh, and then in the hallway? Mm. So yeah, this is something I definitely noticed, particularly in our own panel that we, that we were working with the Edmund Burke Foundation on to, to craft. Uh, we, we helped host one. And that entire panel was largely built around you know, the, the question of the conservative legal movement. It's, it's inherently something of a niche topic, even within the, the NatCon larger discussion. Uh, it's a very important topic, though. And people who showed up knew that and they recognized it. The, the quality of engagement for the questions and answers section of the panel, uh, and then listening to those questions and those conversations continue. Uh, through dinner, even into into the late evening, as, mm -hmm. as many people moved over to the local bar or moved over towards the the pool area outside, you know these conversations weren't just one and done. They were they were picked up. They were threads that people carried with them throughout the conference, and so there were ongoing discussions. Um, I met several uh, old friends who were there and, and got. But to you didn't even know that them. they were going, right? No, no, no. It was it was a uh, pure chance. Uh, I didn't know anybody who was particularly going to be there, but running into them, it was, it was kind of this. Okay, oh, I recognize you across the distance, and uh, getting to talk with them about it. And many of them were here to seek and figure out what this was, as well as as well as myself. And so there were some fascinating conversations that we were able to have. Of okay, what is this? What's going on? What happened in this panel? What happened over here? Where, where's the the discussion going? Um, you know, it's, it's, again, that part of coalition building that mm -hmm. people are actually being drawn in to say, okay, what's going on? This is the new thing. What's happening? Um, and, and they've largely been very successful. The organizers have been largely successful at putting together this uh, greater agreement of people who say, okay, we, we need a, a vision for where we're going next. And, and they're um, at the least working to craft that. I don't know if it's fully there yet, um, but they're certainly working on crafting that. Yeah, so as Daniel said, I attended um, you know the conference um, in Orlando in 2021, and the biggest difference that I noticed from last year's conference and this year's conference was that last year's conference, I think, was trying to cover as much ground as possible to see whether or not there could be something like a coalition with folks like Dave Rubin and... Douglas Murray, who would be more part of the uh, kind of anti-woke, um, but more centrist, or at least like maybe more disaffected liberal um, camp. And those voices really were not either present or not as prominent uh, at, at this conference. The other group that was not as prominent at this conference um, would have been uh, some of our friends who take a, a little more of like a hardline Catholic integralist position. That They largely weren't at this year's uh, conference. Um, but uh, aside from those two um, groups that were missing, really, this was the, uh, the conference organizers, the Edmund Burke Foundation in particular, its um, uh, 
director, um, founder and director Yoram Hazoni. Um, this was really an attempt uh, f uh, for growing, but also um, seeking more clarity on what is national conservatism among, uh, I think, the group that would be um, most amenable to um, the uh, sort of infra-right uh, or intra-right um, uh, 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 cohort. And so what I found were um, vibrant conversations that were as much dealing with substance, uh, uh, you know, of the is issues that were being described. Um, one of the more notable um, uh, offerings on the slate of panels where there were two panels uh, each on uh, sort of, you know, Protestantism and national conservatism, uh, but also like Protestantism and um, the uh, sort of like intellectual heritage, um, and you know two panels on Catholicism and uh, national conservatism, and as well as um, the intellectual heritage of uh, American uh, Catholicism. And so, uh, to to the extent that there was like a cross ecumenical feel at this conference, it wasn't just you know in the religious tradition. Uh, we had panels in which, really, we had you know discussions among um, paleoconservatives. We had a few neoconservatives, but we had also um, you know just more robustly national conservatives, of course, um, represented. Uh, and so um, that all of those groups felt like they could, you know, speak um, together um, shows that this conference really is the conference where people who otherwise might not have spoken with each other or worked together. Um, this is, I think, the conference where the energy is palpable and the feeling after this conference is not just to, hey, see you next year. The feeling is, no, the time is now, as our pal Josh Hammer's fond of saying, um, we know what time it is. Um, or asking that question, do you know what time it is, is the operative, um, is the operative one. And if you didn't come away from this conference um, either feeling like renewed or, or inspired, uh, I'm not sure that you were you know, actually experiencing this conference um, in the way that it's meant to be experienced. Mm. Well, as far as experiencing the conference and the way it's meant to be experienced, you were brought up the idea of uh, intellectual engagement in particular. I know I had some conversations with some friends there who were saying, you know, this was a refreshing time to to get to spend with each other, have some deep conversations, but also dig into these ideas as ideas. And and sometimes at bigger conferences like this, you get a lot more excitement. There's more, you know, say the right line, everybody cheers, say the wrong line, everybody groans. The the short, short uh, kind of slogan politics, as it were, I didn't notice that as much here. I noticed mm. that people were... were trying to really dig in to get the meat of the discussion and what was going on. But I know you, I, that's what I observed in the, uh, in the hallways in particular in those conversations. I know you were in more panels than me though. Did you observe the same thing going on there between, even between panelists? Yeah. So what was unique at NatCon last year and the NatCon conference this year was that if you were in the audience and you had an opportunity to engage during the Q&A, you were just as likely to spur on as provocative discussion as, let's say, a panelist who wanted to kind of reorient uh, or reframe a debate. So one of the more um, 
covered and I was there for it. Um, one of the more um, uh, notable instances of this was when uh, Amanda Milius, friend, um, asked the panel of um, uh, folks whether or not uh, any of them thought of the United States. I forget, I think this was a panel on ESG, uh, although I could be mistaken. I have to, one, the great thing about the NatCon conference is that everything is recorded and, um, and on YouTube uh, available. Um, asked any, if any of the panelists thought of the United States as anything other than just a, um, uh, a way to make money. And uh, when, when she asked that question, it was with that same kind of just let's get back to basics uh, feeling that people at NatCon, uh, sorry, attendees of the, of, of the NatCon conference um, are comfortable asking those most elementary type questions. What does it mean to have a nation? Um, uh, is it anything more than, as Father Richard Newest used to say, is, is the nation like a hotel? Can you just check in and out at your convenience? Um, or is there some kind of deeper association that comes with um, nationalism? Uh, and so, you know, that was, that was just one instance. Um, uh, there were many, many other uh, instances in which uh, the panelists um, were having, you know, great discussions among themselves, but those discussions were triggered, of course, by um, the types of audience questions that, uh, because, you know, sometimes these larger conferences are either too unruly or they don't really, you know, know who's in the audience, they don't trust. But at NatCon, really, uh, the great thing is that, yes, it's grown larger, this conference, is uh, I think close to like 40 or 50 percent larger than last year so there were 900 attendees at this year's conference at last year's conference there was I think 600 so you know the the size of the conference is growing but you know Daniel I don't think it ever felt intimidatingly large even though you know, 900 people at any one conference is a good number of people but it it doesn't it uh, it, it, it didn't feel like we were ever at a conference where uh, we were overwhelmed no, no. There, there definitely was a certain element of kind of the intimate feeling, as it were. I mean, the, the opportunity to see a panelist on one of the, the, the various stages, and then a couple hours later, you find them at the bar with everybody else and pull them aside, have an earnest conversation with them. Yeah. And the fact is that they were all very happy to do that. They were actively engaging because they loved to talk about what they were there to talk about. Um, and we're also willing to take on hard-hitting questions yeah. and and deal with them and respond with them, which was very refreshing. It was yeah. very pleasant. So all the praise in the world goes to Yoram Hazoni, the conference organizer, um, who has just had you know, the magic touch. Um, I told uh, him last year that the conference was a triumph, uh, and I was hard-pressed to think how he could improve on it. And yet here we are at, after NatCon 3 talking about how NatCon 3 was even better. Uh, the NatCon too, and so uh, he deserves. Uh, he and his, of course, uh, wonderful team of both um, staff and, and volunteers uh, at the Edmund Burke Foundation. Um, Christopher Demuth, uh, as well, an old friend of ours at, at the James Wilson Institute. Um, uh, just fantastic uh, uh, collaborators on, on our panel on um, constitutional issues after Dobbs. Um, so our listeners know all of those videos are now available. Uh, of the panel that uh, we worked with um, uh, the conference organizers uh, to, to shape. Uh, and we, we, we really just, you know, every step of the way, um, you know, we were, uh, we were supported and um, we felt like we had a partner in full. And the best, uh, you know, the best, I think, testament to this 
uh, uh, collaboration um, was that you know we felt when we were organizing this panel that we were trying to shape a conversation that no other conference really could have or <laughs> we would have had to have done this totally by ourselves um, uh, on our own uh, but the confidence that the conference organizers had in us to plan this uh, plan this panel and to have these um, discussions about how the how you know, the conservative legal movement, but in general, our law, um, you know, is still, you know, much, uh, you know, uh, much either in, in both in need of, you know, reshaping, but also um, uh, a, a true reorientation after Dobbs, that, um, you know, that was what we were encouraged to have, you know, we weren't encouraged to kind of, you know, conceal our true views for the sake of something greater. Um, we really were encouraged to be honest and to bring forth speakers that, um, you know, wanted to be as honest as possible about uh, the state of our law um, after that uh, uh, significant decision. And so um, what we are, you know, grateful to be able to, uh, to do is, is to encourage that, that discussion uh, because we do think that, you know, there's, there's still plenty that's left to be resolved um, after Dobbs. And of course, that deeper question of whether or not um, the uh, debates that have kind of you know, roiled the conservative legal movement. Listeners of this podcast will, um, you know, will will recall the the episodes we've had on a better originalism um, and the challenge to uh, originalism um, from uh, such uh, eminent scholars uh, such as Adrian Vermeule. Um, these were still very much um, the types of um, debates and discussions that um, we. Are, are having, um, and it was encouraged by the folks at NatCon. And so going forward, uh, we think that uh, having a, a presence at NatCon, whether or not we organize another panel, of course, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're grateful, but um, there's so many wonderful topics to take up. <laughs> we're, we're certainly not uh, so presumptuous to think that um, you know, every single year we're going to be um, uh, planning a panel. Um, oh, but we we thought it was very timely, um, and we were we were sort of grateful to answer the bat signal um, <laughs> when asked. Uh, for in in particular, um, uh, uh, Yoram Hazoni was uh, was very forthright in um, asking uh, asking us um, to uh, to chair a panel uh, on law since there wasn't a panel uh, yep. devoted explicitly to law um, at the uh, second NatCon. Yeah, it was it was honestly a pleasure working with the NatCon team, working with uh, Yoram's team there, uh, and and I'm so glad that we were able to work with them for it because I think we were able to bring something to the conference that others were getting close to, but nowhere quite so on that nose as what we were doing. It was mm -hmm. it was a a useful complement to what else is going on. So much of the conversation was around broader policy, political discussions in particular there wasn't as much of a focus on what's going on in the judiciary, what's going on in uh, the legal battles around the conservative movement in particular. I think we could have spent another hour doing Q&A. Oh, well. easily, yeah. easily. There <laughs> there was so much hunger for that. And and so I'm, I'm really grateful to Yaron that, uh, that he was able to bring us in for this uh, because it proved a, an apt opportunity, I, I hope, on both ends. Um, but Garrett, I did. I do want to return to something that you had brought up earlier. You brought up, you know, the observation of okay, NatCon two was fantastic. It was a triumph, and then NatCon three somehow became even better. So, having been to a couple of these now, 
what would you hope for from NatCon 4? I mean, obviously NatCon 2 was this kind of beginning to build a coalition. NatCon 3 seems to be this defining a coalition. Where where do you see NatCon 4 coming from? So where NatCon 3, I think, did even better than NatCon 2 was at allowing there to be more panels that played to the strengths of either the figures who were at NatCon 2 or some of the figures that maybe were a, you know, sort of adjacent to NatCon but hadn't necessarily either been invited or you know had the occasion to attend. Uh, some of that may be because of COVID uh, and um, you know, in general, people were still kind of uh, restricted in, in, in 2021 to some extent. Um, but I think we really are, are seeing sort of you know a, a flourishing movement and a flourishing really just it's it's a flourishing um leader of an organization in in hazoni who just has been i think very adept at reading the political social cultural and even broader moment um and to encourage debates that get back to basics first principles is I think always going to be at the heart of whatever the NatCon conference is. So I'm not quite sure what come you know fall 2023 will be you know sort of our our unifying theme, but I think the way forward absolutely involves identifying sacred cows, not being afraid to slay them. Um, absolutely involves. Uh, encouraging you know new new voices new leaders in the movement i mean yep. uh look um some of them are going to come from the nonprofit world some of them are going to come from the uh world of polit- politicians some of them are going to come from the world of, of of journalists but i hope that even beyond those worlds uh the great thing about natcon was you didn't necessarily know who you know uh, uh, uh who was going to be sitting in on your on, on your panel uh, and that was one of the, the real blessings of being at NatCon, uh, just really trying to um, start from the ground up and inform relationships. And so um, I think as long as NatCon continues to attract provocative um, voices um, and there's this feeling of you don't have to be you know tenured or, or at a college or, or a university, you don't have to be the most like, established journalistic voice. Really, the the virtue of NatCon uh, as a as a conference is that the organizers have done such a darn good job at elevating the most salient observers, but also like actual doers or or shapers, uh, and and giving them that platform uh, to be able to you know sometimes on the plenary stage make make you know make 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 a, a debate sorry make a speech, um, but also mix it up in in the panels. All right. Well, that's really it. Really sums up a lot of our experience there. I mean, it was an energetic place, a lot of searching for what's going on, what's happening next, um, and I hope at least a few people came away with some solid answers. I mean, at the end of the day, it really is a question of what does what does Hazoni, uh, what what do Hazoni and the uh, the Edmund Burke Foundation do with what they have in front of them? Because they have a lot of uh, kind of building kinetic energy. 
so the question is, are they able to, to cast a vision for what this looks like in the future? And that's going to be kind of the determination of the success of this program is whether or not they're able to, to make that conversion happen um, and direct that into, into where it's going. And so, again, to our listeners, um, we have videos of our panel uh, from the National Conservatism Conference on Anchoring Truths, but also to folks that are interested in the broader conference on the National Conservatism YouTube channel. There are videos from, we, uh, we're recording this in early October. I would say well over 50% of the panels uh, now are on the YouTube channel um, with more panels uh, being released on video uh, every day. And the great thing about um, the conference is that, yes, uh, everything was recorded, save for, I think, some of the Q&A. Um, everything was recorded, so you really could get a feel for what it was like uh, to to be in the audience. However, you got to be there in person uh, to experience the, uh, the fun of... Uh, uh, sidebar conversations in the hallway and, and, and late night uh, discussions at the bar. So um, highly encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for the next National Conservatism Conference next year. Uh, and um, we're grateful to have worked with uh, the Edmund Burke Foundation. And so now for our listeners' pleasure, uh, we'd like to share with you one of the discussions that we shared with one of the panelists at NatCon, Timon Klein. Uh, Timon's been a contributor to Anchoring Truths, and he was one of the panelists at NatCon on a panel about Protestantism and the Anglo-American tradition. So we're pleased to share with you a conversation that I had with him immediately after his uh, panel at NatCon. We hope you enjoy. So we're here at NatCon 3, fresh off the panel on Protestantism and Anglo-American conservatism, and we're here with one of the uh, featured authors at Anchoring Truths, Timon Klein, yeah. just presented. And Timon, for our listeners, can you just give them a sense for what you were presenting on mm -hmm. and then maybe a flavor for the broader panel? Sure. So my, my particular talk was, uh, I actually didn't give it a title, but what I was doing is looking back at uh, 17th century New England to provide us with, to provide Protestants in particular, who have a particular, have operated with a kind of an anemic uh, political theology over the past several decades uh, to provide us with some basic premises of good classical political theory that were exhibited by the New England Puritans um, and to help sort of reinvigorate our own uh, our assessment of ourselves and our involvement in what's what's called the post-liberal conversation. Um, so those uh, basically were, were going through, you know, one, um, our, our politics is supposed to foster unity not division, and we shouldn't celebrate division. Um, two, the, the, the relationship between church and state should be complementary, not antagonistic. And three, the, the civil rulers, the magistrates, have a God-given particular uh, religious interest in fostering religion for the good of the people. Mm -hmm. um, the broader panel uh, was, uh, I think we complemented each other well. Um, Brad kind of gave this... Um, you know, broad overview of all politics is post-liberal, he said. Uh, Glenn Moots, who went after me, um, was, was kind of getting more into diagnosing the problem that I, I referenced with, with evangelicals and Protestants generally. And James Wood did much of the same, but, but was very focused on uh, some of these recent conversations, his own dust-up with Tim Keller and that, that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. I thought it was a good panel. So I do want to get to sort of why these debates are, are relevant mm -hmm. for today, but I do want to go back to uh, the founding period. You have been 
uh, one of the more public figures who have been you know, embracing this, uh, you know, sort of reimagining a world in which uh, blasphemy laws might yeah. be uh, you know, at least revisited under either an originalist framework or more of a natural law uh, fr uh, you know, friendly framework um, to the extent that the two are complementary, even mm -hmm. better. But um, what is it about you know, recent scholarship on blasphemy and then uh, by others and then you know, in particular by you that sort of it, it presents us sort of a, a, a handsome example of just what, you know, what's possible, or at least what is within the range of the possible. Yeah, I th and I think that's, that's part of what animates me the most, especially with Protestants, is re reawakening your political imagination where I think liberal commentary, for instance, um, you know, at this point they're allowed to just reference the First Amendment and just say that and we're supposed to know what that means, content and all. Um, whereas most of what they're referencing is post-war developments that, that really put kind of the nail in the coffin for many possibilities. Um, but something like blasphemy laws, which were quite ubiquitous uh, at the time of the founding and all the way up through the, the 19th century, uh, most famously the Ruggles case, James Kent's uh, famous, famous opinion there, um, they were just a staple of of uh, Anglo-Protestant kind of culture of really all societies. And the rationale there um, was a recognition of the, the common belief of the populace and the need for uh, religion to be respected because it's what animates uh, moral decision-making and gives you the basis of law itself. So the rationale of the courts in the 19th century would usually be black, public blasphemy. They don't care what you do in private, but mm -hmm. public blasphemy. Um, in the Ruggles case, I, I think specifically the guy said um, that Jesus Christ was a bastard or something like that in a tavern. Um, and so it, the Kent reasoned that this is incredibly destabilizing. It's not good. We don't have to adjudicate the actual theological claim, but what we do have to do is recognize the, the public role of religion. It's a good thing, and we, we have a duty to protect it for the sake of civil order. Right. And I think that's, a, that's just eminently reasonable. Um, to think that way about religion. And as I said in, in my talk, uh, there's no doubt that what it, you can ad easily identify the public religion that's operating by figuring out what people, what kind of statements people are punished for. You're not allowed to say, at least publicly. And so there's always, that, that function is always there. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's just a question of what kind of morality you want to, want to put back in. There's, I know there's really good work, uh, that I think this year in the Harvard Law Journal or that was on yeah, Blast the Harvard Law Review, right? Oh, the not, Law not even the HJLP. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, a really good article just going through. I, I've got one coming out in uh, St. Thomas Journal Law and Public Policy, I think in the, at the end of the year, that's a broad, broader look at 19th century case law, uh, the regulatory case law. But part of that is, you know, protection of the Sabbath mm -hmm. and protection of, um, you know, the, doing blasphemy laws and these sorts of things. Very, only very recently jettisoned in the grand scheme of things. So I think they're worth revisiting um, at least for the the way, the rationale of public order that they, they um, you know, sort of exhibit for us and to think about politics that way again. So part of the, right, the post-liberal argument is that we actually do have right. a set of words that would be blasphemous today, mm -hmm. even though we're sort of, you know, laboring, at least in our legal order, laboring under the uh, illusion of mm -hmm. neutrality. But in your view, what are those words today? Mm. Or <laughs> maybe, maybe not like... Give us a sense for what is that structure of blasphemy that still exists, even if you know the laws, for example, in the First Amendment, you know, might yeah. not recognize it. But maybe like what is like the soft enforcement of of, of what we would consider yeah, to be yeah. blasphemous yeah. speech today? And and that would be be true of any point in American history where the social structures are going to be even stronger than the law actually applied. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just recognizing the pedagogical effect of the law, which is is appropriate and, yes. and needed. Um, and so what you see is that um, you know certain. 
aspects of, of Supreme Court precedent, the big ones we've had over the few years, whether it's Obergefell or mm -hmm. whatever, they, they have a way of trickling down, the basic ideas trickle down into the public discourse. Um, and so, you know, something, something like the Sweet Mysteries of Life passage is easily discernible in the way that we discuss our politics all the time. And to run afoul that, to start asserting a positive substantive vision of the good over and against someone's right to choose the meaning of life is immediately met with resistance. And uh, usually the punishment is at bare minimum, you're told you are incongruent with the culture, with, with your polity. Mm -hmm. um, or it, depending on how far you go with it, if you question things like just summarily stated, diversity is our strength, that's good. We should, we should foster diversity. Or if you, um, you know, combat a certain way of looking at American history, like the 1619 Project, maybe you're treated like you're you're a kook, or maybe you're told that you're a racist. I mean, mm -hmm. these are just very common mechanisms that are just new words we use for them. That are always uh, virtue signaling is always a mechanism of enforcement. It's it's a natural part of, of human polity. It's just a question of how you're doing it. Um, so I think we all like intuitively can kind of think about, okay, what are the things you get in trouble for on Twitter? What are the things that can get you quote unquote canceled, lose a job, whatever? And those are the, those are the aspects, those are the tenets, the confession of the predominant religion. Mm -hmm. So give us a sense, you were at our panel yesterday on yeah. um, uh, constitutional issues after the mm -hmm. Dobbs case. Give us a sense for how you think um, your own approach might fit within the range of ideas that were shared uh, in, in, in the panel. Yeah, I mean, I, I found a lot that to agree with. Uh, you know, me, me and Josh Hammer disagree on certain aspects of his own theory, but I found much, per usual, you know, to agree with in his, uh, the things he was discussing. He even brought up the Establishment Clause being reconsidered. You know, I think Thomas and others have signaled their willingness to do so. Um, and, and being more uh, offensive in the way uh, we use our, our jurisprudence, the, knowing the substantive goals we're after, and not really being bashful about, about that, I think is a very good impulse, just a posture um, from which, which you can work. Um, and so I think you know, that opens the door to reconsidering things like how you govern or foster public morality. Um, whereas for so long, we've, we've really imposed limitations on ourselves. Um, as is often brought up, you know, uh, even in this panel today, public indecency laws are still on the books. Um, you know, if, I've already mentioned Sabbath laws. Only in 2014 was the last blue law in the state taken down. Uh, the, a county just north of where I live still has them. So the, these are, we're told that they're, they're long gone and they're archaic uh, things to do, but they're not. Um, so I think that, that at least if we're working backwards, like maybe abortion begins, the working backwards from the things most recently lost mm -hmm. that were publicly moral and good and defined our society, value for human life would be very rudimentary. And then you can begin to work your way backwards of things that were most recently lost. Discussion of the definition of marriage, which we seem to have forgotten about as if it doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, the public school curriculum. Yeah. Uh, these sorts of things, I think that it's it's open season in many ways, especially now that we're recognizing the importance of state level uh, case law again, and the assumptions that you know we we sort of you know have as as part of our like our cultural framework need not be reflected in the most um, you know uh, uh, I guess you know strenuous way in our law, but the presumption has to exist. And as Aquinas says, the purpose of law is not to lead people to virtue suddenly, but rather gradually. That's right. You don't always need to see the full sort of impl uh, sorry the full. Uh, imparting or the, or the fullest extension of a moral principle right. to have law still serve as a teaching function mm -hmm. uh, because right, it's like, you, you, law, law is meant to sort of you know uh, meet 
our culture and meet our populace as you know as, as it exists, you know, in, a, in, a, in a flawed way. But uh, that doesn't mean that you know our law should therefore <laughs> contain uh, you know uh, uh, false premises, right? That's right. I mean, that, you know, Aquinas' classic example with brothels of you can't, uh, you know, if there if there's such a staple of society, at a certain point you may not be able to because any change in the law is violence. It is disruption. And so you have to be prudent about how much disruption you introduce at one time. Yes. And also what the sequence of acceptable gradual disruption would be with an ultimate goal towards the virtue you're leading to. And I think the very basic task we've just now started performing is actually figuring out what the virtue end goal would be. Mm -hmm. And now we can begin to think about what are the incremental steps uh, to get there. But for so long, we just pretended that 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 uh, teleological point, the virtue you're supposed to lead me to, was, was either unattainable or, um, you know, sort of a ridiculous notion um, to, to govern actual jurisprudence. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for our listeners, Time Inclined, uh, a wonderful Twitter follow. Uh, indeed, uh, that's how Time and I first got to know each other. Right. But um, just very quickly for our listeners, uh, uh, any, any, anywhere else that you've been writing or any, any upcoming projects they should, that they should be aware of? Yeah, so I've been writing a lot recently at American Reformer, um, at a piece at, at American Conservative um, a few we or maybe a month ago um got a got a few long-term projects i'm working on now that will be be coming out so you can do the twitter follow and see see when those those happen but uh yeah recent recent articles in american reformer probably the most uh most recent up-to-date stuff yeah excellent well thank you for coming on with us and uh we look yeah, forward for to spending me. the rest of the conference together absolutely excellent thanks. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.